This morning we, we come to the end of the stories in the book of Daniel. All great stories, pretty much all of them well known to those of us who've grown up in the church or even those outside the church. The handwriting on the wall, Daniel in the lion's den, the statue, uh, the fiery furnace, all these things. This is the last of those stories and we'll begin uh, a section on the prophecies of the future to come as we continue through the book. This morning, Daniel 6. Daniel, an old man, having served for decades, uh, faces the threat of the lion's den. So let me read this for us, Daniel chapter 6. I'll read the whole thing. Again, a reminder that this is God's very word. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom, Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then the presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, 
that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then Darius, King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Once again, so ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, May he write it upon our hearts here this morning. As we come before it, let's once again turn (coughs) to the Lord our God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would bless this time that we have set aside to hear from you, that you would fulfill your promise, that your word goes out and does not return to you empty. Instead, it accomplishes what you purpose is successful in the things for which you send it. We ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you have for us this morning. And in so doing, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we may walk according to what it teaches us. Father, once again, we ask all of this in the holy and precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, once again, here we are, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel in the lion's den, the perennial favorite story from the Bible. One of the top ten stories, usually, in list of Bible stories. 
Here's Daniel, a powerful leader, a Jewish exile, and yet a powerful leader in Babylon, one of three presidents about to be elevated to be sole ruler, probably something like a prime minister (coughs) over the whole kingdom. His enemies don't like it. They conspire against him. They can't find anything he's done wrong as an administrator. So they decide that the only way they're going to get to him is to use his own faith against him. And so they lie to King Darius. They've all agreed, all the leaders have agreed that for 30 days no one can pray to or maybe through uh, anyone but Darius. If they do, they get the lion's den. Daniel does what he always does. Goes into his upper chamber where he's got open windows facing toward Jerusalem and prays three times a day. Daniel is accused. Darius can't find a way to change the law, for the laws of the Medes and Persians can't be changed. They can't be revoked. Darius is upset, but he has to follow the decree, so Daniel is thrown in the den. The next morning, he's found still alive, not harmed, reminiscent of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego coming out of the fiery furnace with not even a hair singed. Daniel doesn't have a scratch. Nothing is wrong with him because God had sent an angel to stop the mouths of the lions. His enemies who had maliciously accused him are thrown in with their whole families and die before they even reach the floor of the pit. Darius, reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar, issues a decree to all nations and peoples about God and his glory. It's a simple story. It's a wonderful story. Faithful Daniel and his God who delivers him and rescues him from the mouth of the lion, from the plots of his enemies. And we look to this and we write songs and sing them. Dare to be a Daniel. Dare to stand alone. And that's a great lesson to learn from this. But is that the only lesson? Well, no, I don't think so. We should dare to stand up for our faith, and we should trust in God. And we'll get to that as we move through this. But there are other very interesting features to this story, other very interesting things going on. And I think they give us some other helpful lessons for our Christian walk. I just read this story I just recapped it, so I'm not going to go through it again this morning like I have with some of the other stories in the past. But instead, I want to focus on some key ideas, some key elements of the story and some lessons we can learn from them. Four things. First of all, Darius, King Darius, and this idea of the unchangeable, irrevocable laws of the Medes and the Persians. That's an interesting aspect to this story. The second thing, take a look at Daniel's enemies. What can we learn as we look at them? The third thing is to look at the choice that Daniel was faced with. What was he really being asked to do or challenged to do? And how he trusted God in that choice. And then the fourth thing, the God who did, in fact, and does deliver and rescue. So Darius and his unchangeable laws, Daniel's enemies, Daniel's choice, if you will, 
and Daniel's God, the God who rescues. <coughs> so let's look at these unchangeable, irrevocable laws. It's this part of the story that I've always been, to be honest, very fascinated by. Even as a, as a kid in Sunday school, how can you have laws that can't be changed? That seems kind of silly and, and, quite frankly, a little stupid, foolish. And yet we read here, and we read in Esther as well, the story there, that um, once a law has been made, it cannot be revoked, it cannot be repealed. And Esther, Queen Vashti, is banished from the, queen's, or the king's presence. And we see the same kind of back and forth in this plot by Haman to kill all the Jews. An order goes forth, um, and then it, it is overturned in a very uh, interesting way. We went through that a few years ago. But who would make laws that can't be revoked? Who would make laws that can't be changed? It just seems so odd and strange to me. Maybe it does to you as well, because we're used to changing laws in in our society. We're used to changing laws in our culture. Um, They wrote a constitution 200 some odd years ago, and the first thing they did was amend it. (laughs) Ten amendments. We've got two amendments that disagree with each other, one that creates prohibition, the other one that repeals it. We make laws all the time that change and alter and modify laws and regulations and and whatnot. We're continually tweaking our laws, and that's part of our heritage, I think, in in Western civilization. So what's going on here in ancient Babylon is a bit of a mystery. There's not a whole lot of archaeological or extra-biblical evidence for this idea of unchangeable, unbreakable laws, but it seems to have been fairly typical. So what, what is a nation saying when it does this? Or what is a king saying when he issues a decree and signs it and says it cannot be revoked? I think what they're saying or what they're, what they're trying to say is the law is perfect. Now, maybe the custom arose because, and I could see this possibly as a motivation. Well, let's, let's have, uh, have our custom that once a law is issued, it can't be changed. And that'll restrain kings from making laws. Because they'll be careful. You ever known a king like that? That just doesn't make sense with what we know of history. Make him really consider what he's doing before he issues such an irrevocable law. But if the Bible's any evidence, whether Daniel 6 or Esther, kings don't think ahead very well. So it seems it was less a, a practical constraint on radical lawmaking and more of a way, I think, of saying our laws are so good, our king is so wise, this God on earth in many cases that our laws are perfect. They don't need to be changed. It ascribes a kind of godlike wisdom and power to the king and to the lawmakers. It's a way also of, of ensuring that those laws endure. Once it's made, it's permanent. It stays on the books. It can't be changed. It's a way of saying that our, we are a permanent, eternal people. And so are our laws. And that, I think, is the real folly of what's going on here. 
Because we know the only perfect law is God's law. The only unchangeable law is God's law. The only enduring law is God's law. Time after time, whether it's here in Daniel or in Esther or in other parts of Scripture, or just looking at history, we see how foolish it is for a nation to rise up and say, we figured it out. Our laws are perfect, unchangeable, enduring. Darius is forced to admit it at the end of the chapter and ends up issuing a proclamation acknowledging God's eternal kingdom and his enduring dominion. It's quite a change. Because in this era, the gods of the various nations showed their power really one way, taking territory, taking land. Babylon is the greatest empire. It took more land than any other empire before it. Now the Medes and the Persians come and basically tack on their land that was to the east. This is a powerful, powerful empire. It shows, according to the thinking of that time, our God is in control. He's got the most territory. He's subjected all the nations and their gods. So for Darius to be forced to admit, as did Nebuchadnezzar before him, the Most High God is the ruler of the kings of the earth. The Most High God has a dominion that endures forever. That's a terrible, terrible admission for them to make. They have to admit, my God really isn't that powerful. And it's, a, it's also very, very, very interesting because how much territory does the God of Israel possess at this point in history? Zero. According to the thinking of the people of the world. Israel's been taken into exile by the Assyrians. Judah's been taken into exile in Babylon. That land of God and his people is it's someone else's now, according to a worldly way of looking at things. The temple's been destroyed. Jerusalem's walls have crumbled. Yet still Darius has to admit that the God of that faraway place, whose temple is destroyed, whose capital city lies in ruins, has true dominion and an enduring kingdom. That his laws and his decrees are the ones that stand and indeed will stand at the test of time. What an interesting picture that is, I think. It's a very powerful way of showing us that God's dominion is not found in political entities or nations or peoples with borders and armies, but God's dominion really includes everything, everywhere, all of creation. The continuing lesson for the human kings of Babylon, and a lesson for us to remember today as well. Something we should not forget. By human standards, the God of Israel was powerless. No territory, no people, no priests, no temple. Yet despite appearances, he's still the God of the world. He's still the creator. He's still the most high God. He was and is completely in control. Able to protect his people. Able to bring foreign kings to their knees, literally, literally. 
eating grass. Similarly for us today, we can look around at the world around us and it can seem like it's, as the phrase goes, going to hell in a handbasket. Our brothers and sisters being brutally kidnapped and murdered in various places around the world. Our brothers and sisters here at home being mistreated. Where is God? Where is the territory that he's taken? We can get caught up in that way of thinking. The biblical way of thinking is it's all his it always has always been his, and it always all will be his. We may not understand how God is working his purposes and his decrees out at this present time, but you know we're really not called to understand that. The calling of the Christian is to have faith, to trust in God, to believe. Something that's been a theme in the book of Daniel as well. The men... Daniel and his three friends trusting God no matter the circumstances. God may not look like he's in control according to the world's way of thinking, but he always is. He always will be. And he will bring his enemies ultimately to destruction, but we'll get to that. So this law, this irrevocable law, is such a it's such a curious thing because it's, it's completely against the reality of God's absolute control and absolute sovereignty over all things. So let's look at the second part of this, Daniel's enemies. If the king and his unbreakable laws are foolish, <laughs> Daniel's enemies are even more foolish. It says in verse 6, and it, it repeats the same language again in um, verse 15, that the enemies came by agreement. They came by agreement to the king in their plot against Daniel. The word behind that <coughs> coming in agreement phrase is a very descriptive, figurative word both in Aramaic and in Hebrew. It's virtually the same word. It's the same word used in Psalm 2 when the psalmist says the nations rage against God. This is a raging. They're not just getting together and saying, hey, let's go have a plot against Daniel. They're furious. They're angry. They're agitated. We've got to do something about this guy. That's how they're coming to the king. Very much a parallel of that idea in Psalm 2. They don't just calmly approach Darius. They're in a rage, a fit, a state of agitation. They've got to do something. There's jealousy there. There's just pure jealousy for Daniel and his success, a man who's serving well and prospering and about to be promoted over them all. And we've seen that kind of jealousy. Read your your crime dramas. Look at your crime dramas on TV. Jealousy is enough to commit great crime. But here there's even more to it. We also see in verse 5 that they have, they have no cause against Daniel. Nothing to accuse him with except for some connection against the law of God. We will not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. How foolish is this? They're setting themselves up 
as opponents to God and his law. Isn't this very similar to what we just read from First Peter earlier? If you're going to suffer, if anyone's going to accuse you of anything, don't let it be for being an evildoer, a meddler, a murderer. Let it be for being a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. If others are going to persecute you, the reason should be your faith and nothing else. Daniel's an example for us here about how we should live in, in a very hostile world. It's reminiscent of what we learn elsewhere. Romans 12, 18, As much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with others. In Ephesians 6, Servants are told to serve their human masters well. Romans 13, Even serve those in governmental authority. Now we, we have limits to that. But that's the basic instruction, and that's what Daniel did. He echoes this and, and reminds us of this in verse 22 as he comes out of the lion's den. He's been found innocent, blameless before God, but also, he says, blameless before you, O king. I have done you no harm. Daniel has served his master well in a foreign land, in a foreign situation. So as Christians, serve God. And if your enemies are going to persecute you, let it be for that reason, that the only ground they have is because of your faith. That is an incredibly powerful testimony. If someone can come to any one of us and say, the only fault I can find with him or her is that they're a Christian and that they serve God. They don't lie. They don't gossip. They don't steal. They don't plot. They don't, they don't commit acts of sexual perversion and adultery. They worship God. I can't find any fault with that person except that they're a Christian. What a powerful testimony would that be to the world around us. But how foolish are the enemies who would use that against us. <laughs> and we should see them as foolish. <clears throat> and we should see them as God's enemies more than our enemies. Again, that word, that raging, that agitation, that is an echo of Psalm 2. Who are they raging against in Psalm 2? Against the Lord and His anointed. Who are they raging against, really, with Daniel? Not Daniel. God gave him this success. We learned that back in chapter 1. They're raging against God. Similarly with us, our enemies aren't really attacking us, but God, who's working through us. It's not unlike what we saw when we went through Job. What is Satan really angry about? God's bribing Job. He's accusing God. You're nothing more than a, you're, you're doing nothing more than running a protection racket to buy people's love and favor. So whether it's Job, Psalm 2, Daniel, Peter, Paul, the real argument our enemies have is not with us, but really with God. 
And for us, we need to remember again that God is in control. God is sovereign. And whatever the circumstances are, His will is being accomplished. His purposes are being made sure. Our participation, whatever it might be, is just a small part of a bigger, grander story. It's there in Psalm 7 as well. In the end, those who were attacking David are are attacking God himself. The end of these people is their own destruction. And that's what happens in the story here with Daniel and his enemies. King Darius must have discovered in the process of all this that not all the presidents and satraps and counselors and governors were in on this 30-day prayer thing. Because obviously Daniel wasn't. So they lied. And it says that they maliciously treated Daniel. And they were punished for it in verse 24. Them, their children, their wives, they don't even get to the bottom of the pit before they're all destroyed. This is... This is the end. This is what happens to God's enemies, even those who attack us. They may gain victory for a time in the Middle East or in Nigeria or in some part of the world, and we mourn and we should mourn and we should be angry and we should be upset that our brothers and sisters are being so cruelly and brutally treated. But we know this. (laughs) They will rise at the last day They will live eternally with joy and peace with us and with God in heaven. Those wicked people taking their lives so brutally will suffer in the fiery furnace of God's wrath for all eternity. They will get theirs. What a tragedy that is. There's a bigger picture. God is at work to accomplish His purposes. And anyone who opposes that is a fool. Dan... Daniel's enemies are fools. The enemies of the church are fools. They may gain some victory for a time, but their end is sure. They will be caught in their own net. They will fall into their own pit. Having this bigger view, this longer view, is why Peter can say what he says so boldly in chapter 4, chapter four of his first letter. Rejoice. <laughs> when, you, when these fiery trials come upon you, rejoice. God is accomplishing His purposes in the midst of our pain and sorrow and and difficulty. Third thing that I think is interesting in this story is is the choice that faces Daniel. It's kind of an interesting situation. It's a temporary decree. It's only 30 days. I think it's not so much to pray to Darius, but Darius is going to be the one mediator to the gods. Uh, Nobody's a 30-day god. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) So for 30 days, all prayers have to be mediated through King Darius. And and if you think about that, that's that's not an easy, I mean, that's not a hard decree to to disobey. I just go into my room, shut the door, and I pray. Big whoop. I'm sure many people did that. Many people do do that. Jesus gives us that instruction for our prayers, that they should be private and <clears throat> not for great show in public. And Daniel's not doing any great show. If you think about what Daniel is doing, he's going into an upper chamber of his house, 
an open window that looks west to Jerusalem. It takes real work to see Daniel praying. You can't see him from below. He's way up high. People have to be spying him out. They have to be working hard to see Daniel praying at his window. It's his regular practice, three times a day, so he has a choice. Do I keep doing it? Do I back up a little bit from the window? Do I go into a different room where I won't be seen or heard? It's only 30 days. See, what what I think is really going on here is something that we see in our culture today. We would probably speak of it differently than they did back then. But what they're really asking Daniel to do, and others like him, take your religion, make it private. Keep it quiet. Keep it under wraps. Keep it in the dark. Don't make it such a public, visible thing. And isn't that what we're facing in our country today? So often? You can have your religion, you Christians, but keep it private. Keep it hidden. Anything you do in public has to conform to our public religion, our public morality, our public standards, our public decrees. And so it's becoming more common, whether it's the baker (coughs) in Oregon who won't bake a cake, or the florist in Washington who won't make flowers for a wedding, whether it's the politician who gets grilled about his belief that the world was created in six days, don't bring your faith into the public sphere or we will crucify you publicly. That lady up in Washington has, has been found guilty again by a higher court. And Christians are compromising. We're retreating into our inner rooms. Rachel told me a story just this week. They were talking about this case up in Washington, what happened to this florist for, not ref- for refusing to, to provide flowers for this wedding. In one of the classes, most of the students at a Christian school thought she got what she deserved. Where is our faith? It's being pushed into dark places. I think the essence of the challenge to Daniel is a private, quiet faith versus a public testimony. Willing to continue to do what he did in public. Defy the king's decree because his faith was in God and not in man. And and Daniel didn't make a great show of things. He went about his regular routine. He didn't go storming into the king, what a terrible law this is, how dare they do this. He just quietly went about his routine, doing what he had always done, trusting the outcome to God. And in verse 11, when he was found by his enemies, he was found simply making petition and plea before his God. And so the question for us is the same one for Daniel. Will we bow to the decrees of the world around us, worship the way they tell us to worship, or will we continue to do what God calls us to do, publicly, boldly, with humility, but according to God's word and not the words of men. And then the fourth idea that's in here, God does deliver, God does rescue. Daniel, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
trusted God, knowing that God had the outcome in his hands. Whether God saved him or not, Daniel was going to trust in him, willing to have that faith tested, to be thrown into the lion's den for one night. It's kind of like a trial by ordeal. Can you survive? Like those medieval battles. Uh, a combat testing truth. Whoever wins must have right on their side. If Daniel survives, he's right. He's innocent. If not, well, he must have been guilty. There's that kind of expectation in verse 16 when Darius offers the prayer, if you will. May your God deliver you. Confirmed in verse 22, Daniel says, I was found blameless before God and also before you. So Daniel survived. He was rescued by the hand of God. Daniel's enemies, as we have seen, punished, destroyed. That deliverance may or may not happen to us in this life. For those martyrs in the Middle East or in Africa. For the martyrs throughout the 2,000 years of church history. Who refused to worship false gods. Who refused to curse God. Who refused to renounce their faith. God may deliver us. He may not. Daniel's story gives us insight again into that bigger picture. And here's how. It's an incredible shadow of a larger reality. Some interesting parallels between Daniel's story and that larger story. First of all, there's raging enemies who falsely accuse before a king or ruler who governs on behalf of another ruler. Remember, uh, Darius is just in charge of Babylon on behalf of Cyrus, the great king. The ruler doesn't want to punish the one who is accused. The accused ends up, though, accused and in a pit in the earth. A stone rolled across the entrance, sealed by a signet ring, to prevent any interference. The question of the story in both cases is, will he come out? In both cases, the accused emerges from the pit. <clears throat> Have you been vindicated by God as innocent and his enemies destroyed? Does that sound familiar? More than just Daniel? Because it should. This is a, a foreshadowing of Jesus, the innocent who was falsely accused by those who raged against him. The ruler governing in, on behalf of a greater king who found him innocent, but constrained by law and custom, was unable to release him because the crowd wanted someone else released. Jesus entombed, a stone rolled across the tomb, sealed with Pilate's own seal. The question, will he come out? He said he would. Will he? Indeed he did. Rising from death itself, as Daniel figuratively did in the lion's den. The father having accepted his sacrifice for his people, vindicating him as innocent. What we wait for in the real story is that final part of the story, the destruction of Jesus' enemies. It is coming, as I said. The fiery furnace of God's wrath will destroy 
all who oppose the Son and all who refuse to repent of their sins and receive Jesus by faith. But God in his mercy has delayed that judgment to show compassion, to show his mercy, to give time for all men everywhere to repent and believe. That time is now. The time for repentance and faith is now. The time to stop rebelling, stop conspiring, stop raging, stop agitating against the King of Heaven is now. Psalm 2 says it very well. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish. Turn aside from rebellion, lest you fall into your own pit of destruction. For those who repent and believe, for those who have trusted in Christ, the Lord God who is able to deliver and rescue, there is that hope of eternity, a sure hope, a real hope. The world may be full of frustration and tribulation, and it is. Do not fear, says Jesus. I have overcome the world. God's deliverance, God's rescue is coming. We can summarize Daniel 6, I think, this way. For the Christian, worship the Lord God. And if you suffer, let it be for that one reason and that reason only. Because you're a Christian and following God. And trust God, who's delivered you from your sins and who will deliver you and rescue at the last day. For the non-believer who reads Daniel, the lesson is this. Repent and believe before you are destroyed before you fall into the the trap you've dug with your own sin. And for all, it's the message of Darius at the end of the chapter. Worship the Lord God who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Worship the God who has dominion forever. Worship the God who saves sinful men from their own sin. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word from Daniel, the familiar story. What a treasure it is to know that you looked after Daniel with such great love and affection that you protected him and allowed him to prosper during his time serving in a foreign land. We pray that you would have compassion and mercy upon us. And we know that you have shown great love to us as well, a love even greater than the one that you showed to Daniel because you sent your Son to die on our behalf, to take our sins upon himself, so that we might be found righteous in your sight by grace and through faith in Christ. There is no love greater than he who would lay down his life for a friend, and our elder brother and friend has done that for us. We have already been saved, a salvation greater than what Daniel experienced. And for that, we give you praise and honor and glory and thanks. And our desire is that your dominion and that your kingdom would indeed endure forever. And we look forward to the day of its full consummation. And may that day again, Father, come quickly. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.